0: Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Julia Brown, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Baptiste Brossard, a French sociologist and lecturer at the ANU. His work includes mental health, particularly self-injury and Alzheimer's disease, behavioural addictions and the production of utopian novels. We recorded this interview at the Australian Anthropological Society Conference in December last year. The topic is the output of his postdoc at the University of Montreal and more specifically his book titled Forgetting Items, The Social Experience of Alzheimer's Disease. As I was listening back to our conversation, I was thinking how the COVID-19 pandemic has brought to the fore issues of quality care for our ageing population. And starting with this interview, it is worth sparing your thoughts to how people being treated with dementia might be coping right now with the challenges Batiste outlines, as well as new demands on healthcare resources and social distancing rules. In this pre-COVID interview, you'll hear how sociology and anthropology – which Batiste also trained in during his PhD at ENS in Paris, overlap in ethnographic practice, reflexivity and the application of philosophical theory. Batiste applies Irving Goffman's theories of the interaction order and deference, along with Ian Hacking's looping effect, to what he observed in nursing home and treatment settings for Alzheimer's disease in France and Canada. Batiste reflects on what people with dementia tend to receive by way of standardised and moralised caregiving in nursing homes and what they might otherwise want from caregivers. He acknowledges his own positionality and projections as somebody doing fieldwork in this confronting space. We talk about the French concept of white mourning that loosely translates to ambiguous loss or the narratives of loss that family caregivers experience in regard to their loved one's cognitive decline prior to their physical death. Batiste contemplates whether there is an alternative to this narrative of loss, whether a phenomenon like secondary baby talk is the only way of interacting with someone who is experiencing a new type of selfhood, and we conclude by turning to the issue of social inequity. I should acknowledge that Batiste is a colleague of mine, and I first came across his work in regards to his book titled, Why Do We Hurt Ourselves? And this interview starts off with a brief outline of how self-injury and Alzheimer's disease point to similar areas of social analysis. But before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chat group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insights on today's interview. Okay, here you go. My interview with Dr. Batiste Brossard. So, Baptiste, could you explain to us how you were drawn to the study of Alzheimer's disease as a sociologist, having previously worked on self-injury among youth?
1: So, I did my PhD dissertation in France uh, about self-injury, which is a behavior that we find more among uh, youth. And I I finished uh, my dissertation in uh, 2011. And at that moment, they were a lot of new policies regarding Alzheimer's disease and related dementia in France and in Europe, I guess, which meant a lot of uh, funding for research. And I saw these two research as following one another, especially in the sense that I didn't consider Alzheimer's disease as a specific uh, illness in a sense, but more as a set of behavior that was related to age-related expectations.
0: And in terms of Alzheimer's disease being what we might usually conceive of as a neurological degenerative condition that is heavily medicalised, can you explain how sociology and the social sciences more generally can contribute to understanding of people's experiences?
1: So I hope my perspective on that is a bit specific because there are many research conducted on Alzheimer's disease because obviously it's a major uh, health issue right now and generally Th- there is this conception that the core of the disease is uh, neurological, it's in the brain of people. And then as sociologists, as anthropologists, we can study the experience of the disease and caregiving networks and all that is around the disease but not the disease itself. I think that this conception has to be challenged because For instance, when you talk about Alzheimer's disease, it's impossible to distinguish the uh, cognitive issues from the social issues in the sense of your cognition is affecting your social life and what we call symptoms. It's never purely uh, cognitive. It's always related to social life. In my book, I give a funny example of uh, Jacques Chirac, which the former French president, and one of his... Cook, I think, relates in a biography that Chirac was always forgetting his milk on fire. But the thing is that uh, Chirac was the the French president and he has a lot, a lot of servants, of butlers, of, you know, workers around him, so it has no implication to him. Whereas in another case, if you take someone that is living alone without help, they forget once the milk on fire, uh, the house is burning. We can't dissociate the cognitive issue and the social issue. This is what, what I mean by this even in medical research, there is this notion of uh, the cognitive reserve. That means that with the same neurological problems, people have amyloid plaques in their brain. Some of them may, may have very strong disability in their social life, and some others may not notice anything, apparently because other areas of the brain are kind of compensating for that. So long story short, it's to me it's impossible to dissociate the cognitive disabilities and the social life. And what becomes a symptom is the interaction between the two and not only the, the, the cognitive problem.
0: Fantastic. And I think that's absolutely where anthropology and sociology coalesce in terms of we're all looking at how people embody their circumstances. So how does an ethnographer go about exploring this methodologically? Mm -hmm. How did you actually conduct your research?
1: I worked during five years on Alzheimer's disease, and my goal was to try to have an overview of where this illness was realized, where it happens. And I followed a path that was uh, driven by my uh, ongoing reflection. And I tried to multiply the, the sites of observation. So, I started with what was to me the most obvious place to start: medical consultations, where all people came to be diagnosed or not with Alzheimer's disease.
0: And which medical professionals were doing the diagnosing?
1: Mostly geriatricists and sometimes neurologists, with the help of neuropsychologists, uh, sometimes depending on the on the situation. So. To me, it was the most obvious place to start because it's where people first hear that they have or not the disease. But it was not sufficient to have a kind of global look at what Alzheimer's disease uh, socially was. So I did fieldwork in other situations. Mostly I observed the everyday life in some nursing homes. Either services where uh, residents were both ill or not and some services that were specially dedicated to uh, people living with dementia. I, sh- I should note at the same time that uh, I was both doing field work in France and in uh, Canada and in Quebec. Sometimes focusing on the everyday life, doing interviews with residents, with professionals, especially nursing aides. And I got interested in the management of nursing homes because I think it's a very important point now, how to manage an, a nursing home. And I followed two uh, executives during their their working days. I could do interviews with people diagnosed with dementia in their home, so people who who stayed home. And additionally, I was also trying to understand the production of medical tools. I studied the um, history and the practices related to one of the most used tests in this area, which is the Mini Mental State Examination, the MMSE. It's very important to wonder, to Question ourselves about where to do fieldwork because it, it has considerable implications for what we can find. And if I could have a few more years to work on that, I would do fieldwork in the community because I think, especially in countryside, you know, there is a, a lot of old people and how symptoms are managed. I don't know in supermarkets, in bus stations, in churches uh, could be important as well. But I didn't have time. You've got anymore. to draw a limit somewhere. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> But it was important to me to have a lot of different field works because I wanted to understand how the interactions surrounding people diagnosed with dementia was changing. So I have to compare different settings and different stages of the disease, especially the, the distinction between a medical consultation, where most patients arrive with almost no symptoms, and nursing home services with people at an advanced stage of the disease. It was, you know, very different, and I could... Kind of reconstitutes the, the path between the two.
0: Were there consistencies in the medical approach, at least in terms of how gerontologists or neurologists were treating that initial consultation in Canada and France?
1: So I couldn't observe consultations in Canada. So it was uh, the consultation work was in France. These consultations are fascinating because medically, Alzheimer's disease and any other dementia are very hard to diagnose because there is no unique biomarker like you can have in um, HIV, for instance. And as a consequence, medical professionals have to resort to a lot of different sources. What is said during the consultation, medical imagery, uh, MRIs, psychological and psychoneurological tests, sometimes lumbar punctures and the testimony of relatives of the patients. And they mix that. Often it's not even coherent from a medical perspective and they have to assess what the disease is. And one of the first sentence that I've been told when I was doing field work was this uh, doctor that told me, you know, in my area, medicine is more an art than a science. And uh, I think it's kind of (laughs) a compelling statement from a doctor, Mm. you know, and it's not even controversial, you know, it's just like they have to deal with a lot of complex data and try to help patients, uh, given that there is no treatment for Alzheimer's disease. There are some medicines that are supposed eventually to help, I don't know, 25% of the patients to slow down the progression of the disease, but it's not clear treatment as we can have in, in other pathologies. So doctors have to interpret a lot by their own feelings.
0: Yes, and there must be so much pressure to give objective solutions. It was really good how you pointed out in your book how people being diagnosed today are more likely to have experienced more stability in their lives up until this point in terms of financial and home security, things in their environment being in a kind of order. And in terms of this being a massive public health issue, do you think that there's scope for preparing future generations?
1: I think uh, at least that that it's important to think of uh, this kind of illnesses uh, in terms of generation. People who are diagnosed with dementia now are people who are born in 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. And so they have experienced in their life a situation of uh, full employment, And with opportunities to secure a very stable life quite early in their life, which is not the case anymore for for the generation of people who were born in the, uh, I don't know, 70s, 80s, 90s. So I I think it's important to think about this because it's how we can understand some of the social dimensions of, of illness, you know, in terms of how it is placed in history. In a sense, there is this to take into consideration, but also people who are diagnosed with dementia now in the 2010s and in in the 2000s, they are diagnosed in a transitioning period where we are shifting from an informal management of cognitive disorders among the elderly. You know, 50 years ago, when you have, uh, uh, I don't know, in in a family, a grandpa or grandma that is losing memory, it's kind of self-managed within family or community, uh, to a more professionalized and formalized way of dealing with cognitive disorders among the elderly. And there are public policy that try to set up some specific care, some specific consultations, some specific institutions. This is setting up right now. So it means that for this generation in particular to come back to the uh, security in terms of job and terms of, of uh, housing, it's also very determinant when it comes to uh, negotiating entry to nursing home uh, mm-hmm. because there are people who are grandly attached. There is a relationship to home In a period of uncertainty, that is important to take into consideration.
0: Yeah, maybe people are more likely to be used to this transience in their lives in terms of moving Mm -hmm. between spaces, so it's less disorientating. But let's talk a little bit more about how these social worlds operate. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of your book, you remark upon how it is only when people's inclinations towards self-control appears to falter that we can appreciate how much social order is maintained through everyone's collective efforts and that people with Alzheimer's disease and other kinds of dementia, quote, undermine the foundations of public order grounded as it is on the individual's ability to act as an autonomous and conditioned agent, end quote. And that you therefore wish to explore the what you describe as an interaction order that becomes disrupted by these conditions.
1: It, it is basically Irving Goffman's definition. So Irving Goffman has tried to uh, explain how this interaction order works in general, and I'm trying to describe uh, what happens when it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, a series of norms that are often taken for granted are transgressed. And these norms are very uh, mundane, you know. It can be like when we interact, uh, there are expectations regarding how we look at one another, how we talk to one another, the pace of our talk, uh, how we address to one another, uh, uh, physical distance and all all, all these things. And one of the characteristics of people suffering from dementia, and it's the case for most psychiatric disorders, these are people who are not able or willing to, to uh, fulfill these expectations. So it is a gate to understand the general social order because we are observing norms that are generally implicit to be made explicit. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can take the example of credibility, which is one of the main changes that I observed during my research. In, uh, so to speak, in general interactions, uh, we tend to believe one another Generally, if I say, uh, my name is Baptiste, or I like chocolate, people are believing that it's true, that I'm really called Baptiste, and that I really like chocolate, that I, you know, it's not evidenciable, but that I really express my intention here, or my taste. F- from the moment someone is suffering from Alzheimer's, people around them start to have doubts about the credibility of what they say. When they say, I like chocolate they may be taken as a a symptom and most of what is expressed by the patients is suspicious. I'm giving mundane examples here but it can be a matter of life or death in a sense of whether people are believed or not changes their destiny. When a patient says that they are able to stay home because they know how to cook, how to take care of their home, how to do all the domestic tasks uh, so that they can stay home and, for instance, not to be placed in a nursing home, it has a huge repercussion because sometimes relatives don't believe it and say, no, you're going to nursing home anyway. And sometimes they believe it, but it's a risk because if this person is not either aware of their difficulty or lying in order to, to stay home, there can be you know accidents and, and things like that. So the point here is that they are troubling the most basic uh, assumptions in the interaction order, which is someone who talks is, is believable. And, uh, this and is that, an
0: that, ha- that has self-control.
1: That has well. self-control as well, yeah.
0: So you also apply Ian Hacking's looping effect Mm -hmm. to this context. Can you tell us about uh, what this is, first of all, and how it can complement medical frameworks? Mm
1: -hmm. Ian Hacking's concept of looping effect is a reaction to debates that have occurred in medicine and in social sciences for decades. These debates uh, opposed people who were saying that mental illnesses really existed in the sense that they were real illnesses. And people were generally named social constructionists or social constructivists that say that mental illnesses are socially constructed because they are contingent to social context. And these positions have been taken as opposed uh, for a long time. And Jan Hacking overcame this debate in saying, finally, these two positions are complementary mental illnesses exist uh, through their social construction because uh, the way in which a society uh, names a disorder, a society provides certain form of cares for a disorder, the way in which a society generally organizes the management of this disorder is impacting the disorder itself. So it's not an opposition between reality and social construction, it's a looping effect between the very existence of a mental illness and its social construction. And Yan-Hacking applies that to a lot of different topics, not only mental health, but I'm I'm focusing on mental health Mm -hmm. right now. Not seeing how symptoms that would be pre-existing are shaped socially and constructed socially, but how symptoms are realizing themselves through the interactions.
0: Thinking in with caregiving processes, I'm also thinking about the responsibilities around caregiving, because I know that there are probably a lot of cross-cultural differences and this notion of deference, drawing from Goffman again, in this context where there's this obligation to treat people with dignity and respect, but in a way that produces their social status. Can we talk about that?
1: Yes, okay. So in sociology, the concept of difference has famously been defined by Herving Goffman, again, in an article in 1956, Uh, (laughs) I don't know why I said that. You know your theory. According to Goffman, difference is a component of interactions through which interactants are showing to one another the status that they have. They are conveying through their gestures, through the way they talk, their appreciation of the status of their interlocutors. What I observed in my various uh, uh, fieldwork studies is that there is something fundamental that changes in the production of difference towards people suffering from dementia. I think this uh, change can be uh, characterized in two ways. Uh, First, difference is becoming a moral issue. It becomes a moral imperative, a moral expectation to convey difference to people suffering from dementia. Uh, a, A very simple example to understand that is how we consider that nursing home workers should behave differently with residents, and if they don't, they are terrible person they are immoral person Uh, you can apply the same thing uh, if you consider a a bar for instance in a bar if you have a a waiter that is not polite with the the clients you you will say is a a terrible waiter is stupid or or whatever but you won't say is an immoral person is a Mm -hmm. terrible inhuman person you know so when you enter the area of aging and dementia difference takes uh, a moral connotation and the second thing is related the second change is that difference is becoming particularly institutionalized. It means that the production of difference is not left to the spontaneity of uh, of people, but that there are institutions that are producing specific recommendations regarding the difference to be produced. And especially in nursing homes, again, there are a lot of recommendations on how uh, nursing home workers should behave with residents. Uh, For instance, calling them by their family name, uh, certain ways of addressing them, uh, uh, certain way of talking to them, uh, etc., etc.
0: And does that still apply for more alternative therapeutic approaches like music therapists that might enter those nursing homes? Is that something that you Mm -hmm. ever observed?
1: I haven't observed music therapy, but in nursing homes, I think all workers are expected to uh, adopt this adopt ab- same approach. The same approach, yes. Mm. I think an, an important point to raise in relation to difference is what I called in the book the bureaucratization of humanism because all this configuration places people in a, a sort of contradictory tension. The production of difference is uh, initially based on uh, great intentions. The idea is to have nursing homes or care institutions where residents are showed respect. And the idea underlying this is to shift from the model of the asylum that was prevalent in the 50s and 60s to another model where we would have institutions that are respectful for people. But in doing so, these institutions are standardizing their expectations towards workers. And it was very striking to me to see how many Recommendations or many rules the workers had to had to follow, and in doing so, in transforming some values into recommendations that further become uh, evaluation points for professionals, the production of difference is becoming standardized, which is contradictory with the very sense of of difference that is supposed to be spontaneous and individualized. So uh, what I call bureaucratization of humanism is that some humanistic value are transformed into management tools.
0: And how do the residents respond to this? Do you think that they are negatively impacted by being treated in a very formulaic way?
1: So there is two things to say here. The first one is that all these standardized rules of behavior are very practical for professionals who are lacking time the second thing is that i realized residents are seeking expressions of respect from nursing home workers you know they uh, want to uh, to feel you know good in their institution and they are not really happy where uh, when they see nursing home workers uh, rushing around and not taking time to be with them and they are valuing, in particular, these moments that they think to be informal with nursing home mm-hmm. workers. Uh, so they are seeking some personal involvement from the workers, which is actually only permitted if these workers are kind of going further than these standardised rules I was talking about. Yeah.
0: Yes, and. I guess I'm wondering whether this standardization process is also protecting professionals.
1: Professionals are, of, of course, uh, impacted by uh, by this work. It's very uh, emotionally exhausting. But I think th- th- their main problem is the rhythm, you know, the, uh, how fast they have to go sometimes because they say that, finally all the formal tasks they have to do you know they they have to rush to make everybody eat and to to rush to make everybody uh, have a bath or to rush to, to to put everybody to bed but their real work or the most valuing part of their work is during the in between times. It's the old informal task where they have five minutes to talk with a resident in the corridor or they have five minutes to play board game with them and things like that. So
0: Yeah, it seems that the, the little simple things or that seem simple from the outside are the things that get compromised. How did you position yourself in this space as an ethnographer?
1: When I was doing my field work in France, I was kind of assisting the activity coordinator and I had a lot of free time to wander around in an institution and and talk with residents and doing interview with residents or informal chatting so I was trying to have a role in this institution as well. I mean, it's a basic thing in uh, uh, ethnography because nobody knows what an ethnographer or sociologist here is, so we we need to find uh, at least a... role to play. Yeah, yeah, exactly, a role to play. It's important to experience personally what we are describing.
0: Did you feel like you were aligning more with an informal caregiver role that maybe a family member would take on or more of a formal nursing home carer role?
1: No, I, I was not taking a formal role. I was trying to to be as informal as possible because I wanted to know the backstage in order to have access to different discourses.
0: And did you find that that took an emotional toll?
1: Yeah, I think there is two, two things that were difficult, ageing and cognitive loss. I, I think it's uh, something that... Uh, we can all become you know so of course it's uh doing field work in this area it's a constant projection about you know how can i age and what are the best options to age in what kind of nursing home would i like to be or in what kind of caregiving situation would i like to be i i told you that after after this work i, I stopped doing uh field work for two years because i couldn't uh, do it anymore and i think it's uh
0: Did it help you understand the experiences of family members though or people that would be intimately involved in Mm -hmm. the caregiving of people that are diagnosed?
1: Yes, yes. I think the um, caregivers are generally uh, exhausted because it's a lot of things to do, a lot of things to, to take care of. And I guess the most difficult part of it is that the person you care for is uh, changing to such an extent that they are hardly recognizable. I don't know if this uh, expression exists uh, in English, but in French, we are talking about uh, the white uh, mourning. And I think it's a very beautiful expression because it it says that mourning before the death of the person. Uh, mourning the loss of the person, but not the loss of her or his living body.
0: I don't think it translates exactly, but the idea of a ambiguous loss or a social yes. death, which I think you make reference to yeah. in this context in the book as well.
1: Among caregivers, there is a feeling that uh, that is very hard to accept, hmm. is that death, physical death, is not a necessarily a sad moment, but it can also be a relief in this context because finally the actual death has occurred years before so i think this was a very uh, interesting and emotional part of of this work to be able to to share some moments with caregivers and ask them how they preserve as they can some part of the person they they care for you know
0: do you think that there are any alternative social positions that could happen in this context rather than there being a white mourning or a sense of ambiguous loss? (coughs) Is that the only space that people can occupy?
1: I think, uh, so there are some elements of context to to place here. The fact that the medical perspective to uh, illness and to aging is dominant, it means that it's uh, harder and harder, I think, to find alternatives even in other cultures or to find alternatives even in our culture. I'm sure there would be, Amazing science fiction book or anticipation book to be done about this because indeed we could imagine a lot of different uh, uh different possibilities as much as I was working on alzheimer's. I was wondering whether it's a good thing that relatives and professional caregivers were constantly trying to preserve the person that were before the disease a- and so it's it's a narrative of loss in a sense in a sense it's it's to help this person we have to get them back to what they were at least partially there there could be some other possibilities true considering that this is a change as we have many changes in in our life you know we are kind of evolving person so it could be another evolution i was also trying to find some anthropological works on aging and cognitive loss in in other cultures it's a bit hard to find but you know there are some some small articles on you know more spiritual or even mystical interpretations of cognitive loss and even the fact of talking of cognitive loss is you know culturally connotated it's it's a medical vision of that it may be interesting to try to find you know all the possible alternatives and to to be more open and more reflexive about what choice we can do.
0: I think going back to this question of Losing a sense of self and that need to salvage the past self because that's the supposedly the most desirable yeah. self to have. That is really problematic to me yeah. as well in my work with people with schizophrenia where it, people's past versions aren't necessarily something that they want to carry forward into the future.
1: When we observe how people around the patients are trying to preserve their past selves the past selves of the, of the patients they tend to select a kind of image of what they see and th- this is also another issue you know what part of this person do i know and what part of this person do i try to resuscitate in a sense i think it's also interesting to wonder what is admittable to them to be uh, resuscitated uh, yes. i i realized this idea as i, I met a a resident in the nursing home one night as i was doing field work and <laughs> he, was, he was yelling uh, that he wanted to smoke weed because uh, he used to smoke weed when he was, when he was young, you know. Mm. And obviously this claim was not taken into consideration. So this is just a small example to say also what do we accept to preserve, you know. And
0: Absolutely.
1: Maybe some old people want to preserve something that are not hearable to us. And so the ultimate question here is, is in what role do we somehow force them to stay when we are preserving Past
0: yes, and this is interesting to think about in light of how people are often infantilized mm-hmm. when they get older as well. So they're seen in some ways to regress back to a childlike yeah. state. Yeah. And then treated as such, But yeah. then there are only certain aspects, that, you know, the, the most innocent aspects that people find palatable mm-hmm. rather than the more exploratory adolescent side as yeah. <laughs> um, smoking weed might ignite. So it is complex.
1: Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm really surprised of the fact that in English people are talking about secondary baby talk to designate the way in which people used to talk to older people. I don't know if you're familiar with this expression. I don't know if it's a familiar expression in English, but we're talking about secondary baby talk in the sense that there is a primary baby talk, how you talk to baby, and the secondary baby talk, where how you talk to uh, the elderly. Uh, ah, no, I haven't
0: uh, heard about it's that.
1: It's kind of yeah uh, an expression I, I heard, and it, it, it's true that it's, it's resembling.
0: Okay, one final thing that I would like to touch on before we wrap this up are the inequalities in this space.
1: So inequalities are important to raise because they considerably affect possibilities that diagnosed people and their caregivers can have. So uh, there is the money people have to have services uh, depending on the public services available in their territory. There is also their proximity to the medical culture and their uh, knowledge of some practitioners, of some nurses, etc. So it's not exactly inequalities, but it's related. In the first stages of the disease, people are quite lost and they don't know who to ask. So it takes some resources to know where to go and what to look at. The gender effect is also important. So maybe in terms of inequality, but also because We were talking before about the preservation of the past selves and reconstitution of the past selves is gendered, especially in institutions. For instance, there are some uh, makeup activities for women. Workers try to talk more about cars uh, with with men or all these kind of things. So it's important to raise, but I also wanted to show in my book that even if we had all the money that we wanted to do elderly care, there is the fundamental difficulty of knowing how to behave with uh, people suffering from dementia so that they are not infantilized and not reduced to something they don't want to be reduced to. And the problem of how to interact and what interaction orders we We propose to people suffering from dementia is also something very complicated that we don't exactly know how to face. And what status do we provide to the elderly, the elderly suffering from dementia, and what opportunities in life we we provide to them. It's not only a matter of money, it's a matter of culture and reflections about aging, health, and a lot of broader things.
0: And this, of course, relates to what you were saying about potential issues with a standardization of Care as well, because if people are coming to the experience of Alzheimer's disease from particular social backgrounds, and those things aren't taken into account, Mm -hmm. then you know those gaps, those social gaps widen.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think if if we project ourselves a little bit, if we imagine that okay, there are nursing homes where workers don't have to follow a a very fast uh, routine. It happens, you know, there there are some very good nursing homes, uh, often very expensive, but there are good ones. And now, what do we do with that? I I was talking before about what is called the secondary baby talk, you know, this specific way in which we tend to talk to older people and especially older people with cognitive problems. Well, if you are rich, you also do the uh, secondary baby talk. The idea is how do we invent something else and how we can make a change beyond these basic things. That is, you know, we need a descent. We, we need that, uh, the services dedicated to help. I think it's it's something that many could reproach to my book, which is, you know, I don't talk enough about... Yeah, it's a matter of money and yes it's a matter of inequalities but there is this idea of projecting oneself as well you know when i was trying to to think about what book i could do about this it's so obvious that we need more money you know and so i I don't want to write a book just to say that just to say okay we need more money for the nursing homes we already know that you know we don't need any scholars anymore to say that it's just like a political issue that governments don't want to give money to, to the health sector so it's a it's a political will it's not a, a matter of debate.
0: Thank you so much Baptiste. This has been a really important conversation.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And that was it. Me and Dr. Batiste Brossard. Today's interview was produced by me, Julia Brown, with help from the other familiar strangers, Alex Dayola, Jodie Lee Trumbath, Simon Theobald, and Kylie Wong-Dolan. Our executive producers are Diana Kato and Matthew Fung. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash strange not the Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliastrange.com. If you'd like to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, Email us at submissions at thefamiliastrange.com. Tweet us at TFSTweets or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music is by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. And until then, keep talking strange.